From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, New York jury tells Donald Trump, pay up a lot. Also, the International Court of Justice with an interim finding on the war in Gaza and Israel. People lined up to be election judges. Ai Weiwei's new graphic novel and Frederica von Stade, who has sung on all the great opera stages of the world and in her own house. I sing in all the rooms that have a good acoustic. <laughs> so the bathroom comes through as the most effective. Encore, encore. But first we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, January 27, 2024. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Residents of the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus are reporting heavy aerial and tank fire. The Israeli military says it's been conducting raids on terror targets today, one day after the International Court of Justice in the Netherlands ordered Israel to prevent acts of genocide against Palestinians in Gaza and to do more to help civilians there. The U.S. points out that the court stopped short of calling for a ceasefire. As NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The Biden administration calls the allegations of genocide unfounded, but says the court hasn't issued any finding about that, nor did it call for a ceasefire. Instead, the ICJ is ordering Israel to do things that the U.S. has been encouraging too, says National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. That they have an obligation to be mindful of minimizing civilian casualties, that they have an obligation to assist the international community to get humanitarian assistance. And all these are things that we, uh, that we have been pushing and urging for as well. Kirby says the U.S. is negotiating a deal that would see a pause in fighting in exchange for the release of hostages held by Hamas. He says he's hopeful about that. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Arab American leaders in Michigan are urging their community to reject President Biden over his administration's Israel policy. Khalid Tarani heads a movement called the Abandon Biden Campaign in Dearborn. We will fight Joe Biden. We will make sure that we will punish Joe Biden by making him one-term president. If Trump becomes president, you know, I'm sure America will survive uh, Trump just like it survived him first time it will survive uh, Trump once again. The rift between Arab Americans and the Biden administration was exposed yesterday when Biden campaign manager Julie Chavez Rodriguez had to cancel a meeting with some Arab American leaders because they declined to show up. Former Massey Energy CEO Don Blankenship is again running for an open U.S. Senate seat in West Virginia, this time as a Democrat. Blankenship spent a year in federal prison for conspiring to violate mine safety standards following a 2010 mine explosion that killed 29 men. NPR's Dave Mistich reports. Blankenship has long been a powerful and even notorious figure in West Virginia business and politics. He spent years demanding high levels of production and fighting labor organizing in mines. Fresh out of prison, Blankenship ran in 2018 for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate. He placed third in that primary and made a failed attempt to make the ballot as a third-party candidate. Now, with Joe Manchin not seeking re-election, Blankenship is running for the Senate seat as a Democrat. The West Virginia Democratic Party immediately disavowed Blankenship's candidacy, with the party's chairman saying the ex-coal boss will forever be known as Federal Prisoner 12393-088. Dave Mistich, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Newton teachers and the city are under pressure to reach a deal on a new contract this weekend. Yesterday, a Superior Court judge reduced fines against the Newton Teachers Association for its strike. The union faces an additional $50,000 fine if it does not agree to a deal by tomorrow evening. Governor Maura Healey is giving nearly $4 million to combat human trafficking. The two grant programs will boost enforcement and victim services for survivors of trafficking, domestic and sexual violence, and stalking. The money is going to district attorney's offices, state and local agencies, and nonprofits. A full military burial will be held in western Massachusetts today for a Holyoke sailor who was killed at Pearl Harbor. The Defense Department says 25-year-old Merle Hillman was on board the USS California when it was hit by two torpedoes and a bomb. Cheryl Quinn of Holyoke says her family is grateful the remains of her uncle are being put to rest. My aunt and my father never got the closure, but we're getting this generation is getting it. It's getting the closure. Hellman's remains were identified through DNA analysis. They were buried in the National Memorial Cemetery in Hawaii. Governor Healy is ordering all state government flags to fly at half-staff today in honor of Hillman. A quirky commercial for easy-listening radio station based in Cambridge has a new owner. The Boston Globe reports that radio personality John Garabedian bought the station this week. He plans to carry on the format and style of former operator Bob Bittner. Bittner ran the station until his death in May at the age of 73. The station has re-aired old shows since then. Garabedian says he plans to broaden the station's range and stream it online. This afternoon, the Bruins are in Philadelphia against the Flyers. At the Garden tonight, the Celtics take on the Clippers. It's 35 degrees in Boston, some drizzle and some patchy fog around this morning, a cloudy Saturday, and a high about 40 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Progressive. Progressive commercial auto insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. The New York jury has told Donald Trump to pay $83.3 million to E.G. Carroll for defamation. NPR's Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. The jury barely had time to get to know each other. They uh, deliberated for three hours. What can we infer from that? You know, maybe not a record, but also not really a surprise, not when you consider the facts and evidence at trial, including the behavior of the defendant. Trump muttered and fumed out loud in the courtroom and even stormed out during the summary by the plaintiff's attorney. Now, there will be an appeal, and who knows how much money Trump will actually have to pay, but there's much more to this than money. This is the first verdict of what will be a season of trials, and you can only imagine the significance that Trump would attach to this case if the verdict had gone the other way. Ron, how has Donald Trump managed so far to face multiple serious prosecutions, and now this judgment, and still be the front-runner for the Republican nomination? That is an enduring mystery for many, but for those who have found a champion in Donald Trump, it seems nothing that has happened disturbs their faith. He is their defender. They believe he is on their side. 
So Trump simply dismisses all these cases as Biden's skullduggery, even the case in the case of New York that began before Biden was even president. It's been a deal brewing for months in the U.S. Senate that uh, ties aid to Ukraine and Israel to a plan for action at the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, this week, Donald Trump urged Republicans, urged Republicans to reject whatever that plan ends up being, and this angered Senator Mitt Romney. The fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is uh, is really appalling. Yes, but that seems to be what's going on here again. If you think Trump should legally still be president, maybe you want him to step in on big national problems. And you remember how when he was first nominated in 2016, he told the GOP convention, I alone can fix it. Well, that's essential to his brand now. Trump is also calling on states to send troops to Texas to, quote, prevent the entry of illegals and remove them back across the border. Would that be unconstitutional? Just this past week, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Biden administration in its dispute with Texas over who should be enforcing immigration laws. Uh, their court, the court focused on the Constitution's division of state and federal authority. And we'll hear about that again if other states begin sending their National Guard to the border with Trump's encouragement. The high court seems to have settled the debate in constitutional terms, but that has not ended the debate in political terms. South Carolina Republican presidential primary February 24, Nikki Haley of South Carolina says she looks forward to it and will stay in the race. But does she have a path to actually winning the Republican nomination? It is hard to imagine a path to the nomination for Nikki Haley so long as Trump is in the race and continues to dominate. But former Congresswoman Liz Cheney and a number of others who remember the old, grand old party, want Haley to stick it out. They want to signal that the party will have a life to live after Trump and his era have passed. President Biden's in South Carolina this weekend. Uh, primary there, first for the Democrats, is a week from today. What would victory for the president look like there? It would look like a replay of the extraordinary turnaround Biden's campaign achieved there four years ago. South Carolina was where Joe Biden went from loser to winner, from also ran in the first three events that winter, to leading contender. So victory here for Biden would serve as confirmation that his coalition from 2020 is substantially intact and his renomination is virtually assured. And Pierre's Ron Elvin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. The International Court of Justice stopped short of ordering Israel to halt its military campaign in Gaza, but it did order Israel to take immediate steps to protect civilians in Gaza. That decision is part of a larger case brought to The Hague by South Africa, which alleges that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. In the conflict that began after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7, killed some 1,200 people and took many hostages. And Pierre's Ader Peralta joins us now from Tel Aviv. Ader, thanks for being with us. Hey, good morning, Scott. Why did the court not order a ceasefire? You know, they didn't address that directly in their opinion, um, but some legal analysts doubt that the court even had the jurisdiction to order a ceasefire. But what the court 
did say is that the allegations that South Africa is making against Israel, mainly that Israel is committing acts of genocide in Gaza, were in the least plausible. Uh, and because of that, the court said that it needed to act even before it considers the merits of the case. So it issued uh, what it calls a provisional order telling Israelis uh, Israel to do everything it can to stop the death of more civilians in Gaza. And it ordered Israel to do everything it can to avoid committing genocide. Uh, very shortly after the decision came down, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, put out a defiant statement saying that any charges of genocide against Israel were, quote, false and outrageous. Let's listen. Like every country, Israel has an inherent right to defend itself. The vile attempt to deny Israel this fundamental right is blatant discrimination against the Jewish state. Ader, how have um, Palestinians and other Israelis reacted to the decision? So the Palestinian Authority said the court's orders uh, were the beginning of, quote, holding Israel accountable. I also spoke to Noura Erakat, a Palestinian-American human rights lawyer who teaches at Rutgers, and she said that even without calling for a ceasefire, this was a significant move. Let's listen. The decision that they provided still provides the means for an international community to continue to agitate for that ceasefire, for weapons sanctions on Israel, for accountability. And what she's saying is what's important is that the decision highlighted the inflammatory language being used by some Israeli officials and that by a wide margin, the court called for restraint. Uh, here on the streets of Tel Aviv, uh, the reaction was muted. Uh, most people were disappointed, saying the court said little about the attack by Hamas uh, and that it skirted the issue that they cared about the most, which is the release of the 132 hostages that Israel believes are, are still in Gaza. To be fair, the court did call for the hostages to be released. Um, and I also found a solitary voice in, in Rani Amir, who is 25. Let's listen. I think they took like the easy way. They, they don't care about people's lives, not in Gaza and not in Israel. And she was protesting against uh, the war in the middle of the city. Uh, and she wasn't popular. Lots of Israelis who were just walking by shouted insults at, at her as she protested. Ader, does this decision have any practical effect? I mean, this uh, is a case that can take years to work its way through this court. There's a similar case against Myanmar that was filed in 2019, and it is still waiting for a resolution. Uh, but more immediately, the court expressed a lot of concern for the humanitarian situation in Gaza. More than 26,000 Palestinians have been killed, according to Gaza's Ministry of Health. Almost the entire population of the Gaza Strip uh, have been displaced, and they're going hungry. The court ordered Israel to allow humanitarian aid to flow more freely into Gaza, and this adds to the calls we've already heard from the U.S. and the U.N. and others. Uh, so we'll see if this makes a difference on that front. And Ader Peralta reporting from Tel Aviv. Ader, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Charles Osgood had a voice as smooth as sherry and could make words ring and rhyme in your mind. As our friend Bob Edwards, the original host of NPR's Morning Edition, told us this week, Charles was equally fluent in two languages, news copy and doggerel. He never saw a reason not to excel at both. Charles Osgood died this week at the age of 91. He enjoyed, and I think that's just the right verb, a 65-year career in broadcasting, mostly at CBS, where he hosted CBS Sunday Morning for two decades and delivered his graceful reports, poems, and yes, doggerel on CBS Radio. I first noticed his work on CBS All News Radio when I was in high school. 
You can tell that a lot of his students had listened to Charles Osgood's wry commentaries and poems in the morning when we read out our own essays in English class that afternoon. Ours were but poor imitations. I got to meet Charles years later after I became a special contributor to CBS Sunday Morning. I won an award once with Charles's name on it, and he recollected that night how he'd been what amounted to a personal radio staff of one. After President Dwight Eisenhower suffered a heart attack in 1955, Charles hosted a closed-circuit program from a Washington, D.C. radio station that was piped directly into the president's recovery room for the commander-in-chief's high-ranking ears only. It reminded me, said Charles, that no matter how many or how few people are listening out there or who they are, you always talk to people personally. Charles could seem a little uncomfortable when people called the verses he wrote and read on the air poems. He seemed to feel that poems are what Robert Frost, Emily Dickinson, and Langston Hughes wrote. Most of the stanzas Charles wrote were comic verses, doggerel, that stretch rhymes for a laugh. But this week I've been thinking of his 2014 composition, Time Enough. Man is mortal, this is true, and that applies to women, too. To each of us, those we love, and to our dearest friends, at some point life begins, and at some point it ends. We don't know when. Life is dispensed in differing amounts, but it is not how long we lived. It's how we lived that counts. Death, like life, is natural and not to be afraid of. If you love life, guard well your time, for time's the stuff life's made of. I think that's a great poem by Charles Osgood. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the story on an engineer in Alabama suing the defense contractor Parsons Corporation for discrimination, arguing that he was fired for speaking his native Hindi language at work. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. WBUR supporters include Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for fall. BGSP.edu. And Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. 
I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. President Biden will be in South Carolina later today. He's the keynote speaker at tonight's state Democratic Party fundraising dinner. He's to return to the White House tomorrow. Former President Donald Trump is vowing to appeal a jury's decision to award more than $83 million to longtime advice columnist E. Jean Carroll. This award is on top of the $5 million a separate jury awarded Carroll last May over her claims that Trump sexually assaulted and defamed her. And Amber Glenn is heading to the World Figure Skating Championships. The competition is being held in March in Montreal. Glenn won the women's title at the U.S. Championships last night in Columbus, Ohio. The men's title will be decided tomorrow. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories, More at Staples Stores or Staples.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Election workers face more scrutiny than ever, and that is especially true in Fulton County, Georgia, where 2020 election staffers endured threats and harassment after then-President Trump falsely accused them of election fraud. Is that making people reluctant to volunteer for election duty? WABE's Sam Greenglass reports. In the parking lot of a neighborhood rec center, Evelyn Meyer steps off a blue and orange bus retrofitted with desks, clipboards, and recruitment posters. Inside, Myers has just signed up to work her first election, hoping to inspire her four grandkids. My 17-year-old will be 18 in June, so he'll have a chance to vote, and I'm excited for him. Meyer says she also felt compelled to serve after Trump and his supporters baselessly attacked the integrity of Fulton County's election and the people who ran it. I'm not a fearful person. God has not given me the spirit of fear, and I think I can do this. Until recently, fear was not something poll workers even really had to think about. But that changed after 2020, especially when Trump and his allies like lawyer Rudy Giuliani singled out two black women in Fulton County who helped run the November election. Trump and Giuliani unleashed a torrent of baseless claims and continued to peddle them, even after multiple investigations found them untrue. Mother-daughter Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss reported receiving messages like, be glad it's 2020 and not 1920. The flame that Giuliani lit with those lies and passed to so many others changed every aspect of our lives. Our homes, our family, our work, our sense of safety, our mental health, and we're still working to rebuild. That's Moss outside a D.C. courthouse in December, after a jury ruled Giuliani had to pay the women $148 million for spreading lies about them. Moss says her greatest wish is that no one experiences what they went through. But right now, many election officials do worry the political climate will make it harder to recruit staff for the 2024 election. Jennifer Morrell is a former elections official who now advises election departments. There was always a focus on what if there's a fire, what if there's a flood, 
I think that has shifted to include threats of violence and acts of violence. But Morell says election departments are adapting in other ways, providing de-escalation training, coordinating with local law enforcement, and offering mental health resources to staffers. What I'm seeing is election professionals tackling this challenge the same way they always have, and that's with drive and creativity. In Fulton County, tackling that challenge is LaShondra Little, the voter education and outreach manager. She doesn't sugarcoat the long days that come with working an election. I cannot promise that you're going to get home by 10. I can promise that you won't start earlier than 5. At this recruitment fair in a wood-paneled community center outside Atlanta, prospects sit in rows of folding chairs listening to Little's pitch. We do give everyone a shirt to wear as your uniform, and then we also provide lunch. But pack what you need for that day, take any medicines you need to take. Despite the well-publicized pressure on election workers, Fulton has now filled all 2,300 election day positions, but is still hiring for early voting and reserves. We actually haven't had to convince people. <laughs> people literally have been calling, asking how can they sign up. How, I mean, even this room, when we first got here at 9, people beat us here. Among the applicants this year, two friends. Here's Vanita Epps, then Gloria Smith. I became a poll worker in 2002, and since then I have worked every election. It is my passion and my duty as a citizen in Fulton County. I'm eating healthy, I'm resting right, and I'm looking forward to the long haul of this election coming up in 2024. Epps says she watched in horror what happened to Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, and their experience did give her pause. But then I prayed about it and I went on about it. I got up and did what needed to be done each day. That, for me, made me want to go even harder. Matter of fact, I think that really motivated people to want to be a part of the elections. For Smith and Epps, the attacks on the vote also evoked the past. Both were born at a time when Black voters in the South faced literacy tests, poll taxes, and other arbitrary criteria to block the ballot box. Here's Smith. That was the time where they had to count how many jelly beans was in the jar. And when we were growing up as kids, our parents would always explain to us why they was voting, how they were voting. And they would even let us go with them on election day. Epps' parents, Eddie and Edna May Lowe, tried to register in Terrell County, Georgia, in 1957. Even though both attended college, the registrar decided they failed the literacy test. The Lowe's joined a voting rights case that made it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Every time I get ready to go and start another election, I think about the words of my mom and how she always said to me, I don't feel no ways tired. That means even when it seems like there are obstacles in your way, like it was back in 1957, you don't get tired when you feel like that there's a good work that needs to be accomplished. This election day, Smith says she'll be thinking about her parents, too. They said if it's a dog catcher's face, they're going to vote. We have to still keep the movement going, and people have to still become a part of it. We cannot let it die. And Smith says she's nowhere tired yet. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in College Park, Georgia. Days after a Russian military transport plane went down near the Ukrainian border, questions still linger over what or who caused the crash. NPR's Charles Maines is following developments from Moscow. So here's what we do know. This past Wednesday, Russia said an IL-76 military transport plane crashed in the Belgorod region bordering Ukraine, killing all 74 people on board, the vast majority, Russia insisted, Ukrainian prisoners of war. 
Also this, hours later, Ukraine confirmed a scheduled prisoner swap negotiated with Russia was now suddenly off. On Friday, President Vladimir Putin became the most prominent of Russian officials to pin blame squarely on Kyiv for what the Kremlin calls a monstrous act. Knowing its POWs were on board, Ukraine attacked the plane, said Putin. I don't know whether they did it on purpose or by mistake, but it's still a crime, he added, one committed using Western-provided weapons. Witness video, initially shared by Russian state media and since verified by independent news organizations, captured the plane's final moments, the aircraft descending at a sharp incline before exploding in a massive fireball. Ukraine has not outright denied it downed the plane, but neither have Ukrainian officials acknowledged any Ukrainian POWs were on board or that any servicemen died in the crash at all. Addressing his nation in the aftermath, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky demanded an international investigation and accused the Kremlin of exploiting the moment for gain. It's obvious the Russians are playing with the lives of Ukrainian prisoners, said Zelensky, playing with the feelings of their relatives and with the emotions of our society. Meanwhile, Russia's investigative committee released video of blurred-out carnage from the crash. It also published what it claimed were several Ukrainian passports found at the scene. President Putin now says with the plane's flight recorders back in Moscow, Russia's investigation will soon be laid out for all to see, including, Putin insisted, Ukrainians. Amid a war in which information has been a weapon on par with bombs, the facts and truth about the crash in Belgorod now hinge on Kremlin transparency. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. About an hour's drive from Anchorage lies a jewel of Alaska's summers, Portage Glacier. Stunning vistas, boating on the lake. Winters are bitterly cold, but the frozen lake and dark skies can make for delightful recreation just the same. It's maybe minus five degrees. All the stars are out. Orion, the Big Dipper. I'm skating on the blue ice of Portage Lake in Alaska. Wear warm socks, though. You can hear that story tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha. Listen live on your radio or tell your smart speaker to play your local station by name. Highway Way says he spends a lot of time watching animals. I think while you live with animals, you learn a lot. And they are often um, more sensible or have higher intelligent in their own way. The artist and outspoken activist for human rights lives with a few cats, and one of them can reach up and turn the handle of a door and open it. While he's doing that, the other cats would uh, lay around, just watch uh, he's doing that. Then everyone would follow him to go out to the garden. And that really surprised me how he would know by doing that he can get out. So those cats are very, very smart. His new graphic memoir, Zodiac, has 12 chapters, each named after an animal from the Chinese Zodiac. The artist connects each animal with a story from his life. In the first, Mouse, he recalls growing up in a village in northwestern China that was having a massive infestation of mice. 
The school blamed it on the Soviet Union right across the border and told children in the village to kill as many mice as they could and bring in their tails. When you go to school, you will present how many tails of mice uh, in your hands. We didn't feel that's uh, something very awkward. You know, everybody does it. My highest record is I can catch 81 mice a day. Ai Weiwei is the son of Ai Qin, a well-known poet who fell out of favor with the Chinese Communist Party in the 1950s. That's why his family was up there in northwestern China, in a labor camp. Ai Weiwei was also spurned by the Communist Party. It began in 2008 after an earthquake in Sichuan province killed about 90,000 people. But in China, they automatically think the casualties are caused by the natural disaster, which uh, I don't look at that way. Um, because the school are built by government, so should not collapse. But very often you say school collapsed, but the other buildings standing next to it is not a collapse. So Ai Weiwei began his own citizen's investigation to find out why so many people had died, including many thousands of children. So I organized the team to go to the locations of earthquake, and town by town and family by family, also school. So we visited all the collapsed schools and interviewed those uh, parents of the victims. By doing that, we collect uh, over 5,000 students' name and birthday. Each day I would post my discoveries on my blog. So that act generates the whole nation's uh, attention. The government reacted swiftly. Police broke into the team's hotel room in the middle of the night to make arrests. During one conflict, they beat me and uh, caused my brain uh, hemorrhage. And also they detained me many times. Three years later, in 2011, I was headed to the airport to fly to Taiwan to set up an exhibition and was stopped by police, put into a van, and held in a sealed room. Never in prison, but in secret detention. i never been really officially accused. It's just trying to use some kind of illegal way to detain me. He stayed in that room for 81 days. Same number of mice he captured one day as a child. Eventually, Ai Weiwei was released and left China for Europe a few years later. The book ends with a picture of Ai Weiwei flashing his middle finger. It's a gesture he's become known for. Well, it's a silly gesture, but it become more and more meaningful when it's become a form of resistance. So in today's condition, we often want to raise our mid-fingers. And he says he's raising his middle finger not just to China, but also the West. I was flatting my fingers in front of White House in Washington, and also Trump Tower, and uh, also the Berlin Parliament. You know, I, I do many locations, hundreds of locations. Ai Weiwei, his graphic memoir, Zodiac, co-written by Elektra Stamboulis and illustrated by Gianluca Costantini.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. An engineer in Huntsville, Alabama, is suing a major defense contractor, arguing he was fired because of his national origin after he spoke Hindi on the job. His lawsuit has drawn the support of a high-powered former federal prosecutor with experience in national security cases. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. Anil Varshney worked for decades as a systems engineer in the missile defense industry until one day when he answered a video phone call from his dying brother-in-law in India. And we talked in Hindi, my native language, for less than two minutes. And next thing I know that I was fired. The defense contractor, Parsons Corporation, had a security guard escort him out of the building. Oh, it was the most embarrassing time of my life. I said, after 22 years of dedicated, loyal work for this missile, and I was so proud of working here. Varshney, who is 78, has filed a federal lawsuit against Parsons and the U.S. Missile Defense Agency alleging discrimination based on race, color, national origin, and age. He says there had been a pattern of mistreatment that singled him out because of his nationality. I was called the thing. Uh, they would interrupt me like, what I say doesn't mean too much. So these kinds of behavior, you know, you finally become numb to them. Varshney is a naturalized U.S. citizen and raised his family in Huntsville, the North Alabama city is a hub for the defense and space industries. He says despite the work environment, he never filed a formal complaint with the Parsons Corporation, worried that he could be labeled a problem employee. The Virginia-based firm says that's an issue, that Varshney's allegations of discrimination had never been raised internally and are unsubstantiated. Through a spokesman, company representatives declined to be interviewed for this story, providing only a written statement. It says Varshney's termination had nothing to do with his national origin, race, or age, but that he was fired for using a camera on his cell phone at a classified work site, a security violation. Varshney says white colleagues were never punished for similar behaviors and believes he was unfairly targeted. Former New York U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara agrees. He was discriminated against because of who he was, where he came from, and how he spoke. Bharara, now in private practice, says this is not typically the kind of case he would take on, but that he was inspired by Varshney's story, one similar to his own family's, of immigrating from India to make a better life. I was moved by his contributions to the country, and I was horrified by the way that he appears to have been treated. I think that Mr. Varshney has shown himself to be as patriotic an American as anybody who was born in this country, working in the service of the defense of this country. And I think it's very, very unfortunate that he has had to suffer what he's had to suffer, given that track record and background. And Neil Varshney says he's not been able to find defense work since being fired by Parsons. He says the company has effectively blackballed him from his career. I, I want my name back. Uh, I, I want justice. I don't want people in my situation to be treated like this with the, by these companies. The companies should learn that they just cannot get by this. The lawsuit seeks to have Varshney reinstated and awarded lost wages. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Huntsville, Alabama.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. A Superior Court judge has reduced fines against the Newton Teachers Association, which has been on strike since January 19th. The judge called on the union and city officials in Newton to use this weekend to reach a deal so that schools can reopen. The union will be assessed an additional $50,000 fine if no deal is reached by tomorrow evening at 8. A public grand reopening celebration takes place today at the Krista McAuliffe Center at Framingham State University following an $8 million renovation. The center is named for Framingham native Krista McAuliffe. She was chosen to be the first teacher in space, and she died in the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster, which occurred 38 years ago tomorrow. In men's college hockey last night, the Battle of Com Ave began with a big win for Boston College. Second-ranked B.C. defeated top-ranked Boston University 4-1 in Chestnut Hill. Tonight, they play at BU. These games mark the first time the rivals have ever met when holding the two top positions in national polls. It's 35 degrees in Boston, some drizzle and patchy fog this morning. Cloudy today, high around 40. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science with the new exhibit, Changing Landscapes, showing how innovation helps us adapt to a changing climate, now through May 5th, mos.org. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com slash go. WBUR has invested in building a relationship with us over decades. I think about this as a way to repay that. If we're able to make a difference with our giving that lives beyond us is something that's deeply satisfying to consider. John and Margot Davis are leaving a legacy to WBUR to ensure a strong future. You can too at WBUR.org legacy. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Leo Vardishvili's new novel is about a family that's trying to find themselves again through the thick forests of lost history and, yes, fearsome woods. Saba and Sandro come to London with their father, Iraqli, in 1992. A civil war breaks out in Georgia after the fall of the Soviet Union, The author sets the scene from the very first. Where's Eka? We must have asked a thousand times. Our mother stayed so that we could escape. You see, war trumps most things. You'll find that a volley of AK-47 rounds fired right down the street will override almost any other concern. We heard gunfire by night and saw brass twinkling on the pavement in the morning, as though it had rained shell casings all over Tbilisi. Sounds manageable so far. But when a stray tank shell breaks the sound barrier by a bedroom window, screams on and deletes the corner grocery shop and the entire family living above it, you will begin to make plans. That is Leo Vardyashvili, whose family came to London when he was 12. His novel is Hard by a Great Forest. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's a pleasure. Fair to say a lot of your own experience wound into this novel, isn't it? It's very fair to say, yes. 
Um, I'm similar to the main character in that I left Georgia not as early. I actually stayed there through the Civil War, but we left in 95 and came to the UK as refugees. And the main character was in the same uh, situation going back to Georgia. Mm -hmm. He went back reluctantly. I, I went back willingly. Um, and I didn't have to contend with the escaped zoo animals and so on that, that go on in the novel. Well, I, I want to ask about that and so much else. I, we also want to make plain your mother was able to come, unlike the mother in this novel. But but your grandmother couldn't, right? My grandmother I never got to see again. Um, we exchanged letters, obviously. Um, and back then we used to do this thing where um, we would send tapes, voice recordings yeah. rather than letters. But I, I never really got to see her again, and, th and that was quite upsetting. It's one of those things that sticks around as an effect of war once the cameras and the reporters have left. It's the stuff that you don't really see. Yeah. And may I ask you about that time in your life? Because I've, I've, I've read a piece you wrote that, that you had a game with shell casings. I did, yes. Um, I don't remember the Civil War badly. I know that's a weird thing to say, but I was 12. Um, so I was still a kid, and the shell casings game was simply us collecting shell casings on the way to school and then comparing them and arguing over who had the best one. Um, but that's children for you. I guess they don't always see the, yeah. the seriousness of, of what's going on. In your novel, Hard by a Great Forest, uh, as we said, the mother dies and the father years later decides to return to Georgia. But then the sons get a message. It's pretty blunt, isn't it? It is, and it sets up the central mystery. So the message is essentially, do not follow me. I've left a trail that I can't erase. Do not follow me. So, of course, in the traditional kind of mystery style, they ignore his um, instructions and follow him. So it's the oldest son that goes and follows him first and finds this trail. And surprise, surprise, he disappears also. So it's up to Sabo, who's the youngest, the youngest son. He's essentially alone in the world at this point, uh, no other family. So he has no choice but to go back to Georgia and find this breadcrumb trail and try and find his father and, and brother. And tell us about the wild animals that run through the story. It's the strangest part, the strangest element in the book, I think. But it's actually, it, it really did happen. In 2015, there was a flash flooding in Tbilisi and the zoo happens to be along the river. Uh, therefore, all the fences were washed away and literally the entire zoo got emptied into the city. Um, so a lot of the details of the, the hippo, the wolves running around Tbilisi and the scary Bengal tiger, uh, which makes an appearance in the novel. I won't spoil anything there, but that all really did happen. So when, when I saw that article on the BBC, I think it was, I thought, this is too good to pass up. I have to include this. Are we right to see it as a metaphor as well? Someone pointed this out to me recently that I hadn't picked up on it, even though I wrote the damn book myself, but the animals are themselves refugees. So they've been freed by from their home. They've escaped their home and they find themselves in alien surroundings trying to make their way through this city, which kind of reflects the, the themes of the novel, doesn't it? Yeah. Tell us about your trip back to Georgia. It sounds extraordinary. My first trip, it was like time traveling. Uh, we got on the plane. I was fine. I got off the plane and I time traveled into my childhood. I didn't realize how much of Tbilisi and my neighborhood I would actually recognize. I kind of thought I'd go into it like a blank slate and it would all be new to me, but 
surprisingly, I remembered almost everything. Um, and that freaked me out a little bit, to be honest. And that was the inception of me starting to write this novel, is trying to make sense of it, even just to myself. What about your bus trip? Or should I say, lack of a bus trip one day? Oh, the lack of the bus trip. It's a perfect summary of, of Georgian hospitality, which if you look at travel guides for Georgia, they always mention the hospitality of the, of the people of Georgia. But essentially, I was just outside of Tbilisi in, in a tiny village, and the last bus just didn't turn up. These things happen in Georgia sometimes. But I was stuck in a in a village that had maybe 10, 10 homesteads or houses on it. The hike into Tbilisi would have been a few hours. I was kind of stuck, and a farmer came across me on the way home, I suppose. And he, he kind of went, there's, there's no bus, mate, until half six tomorrow. And then just kind of just casually motioned me to come with him as though that was a normal, acceptable thing. And I, I did go along with him and I stayed at his, his house. Um, what I didn't realize is they literally offered me their best food and put me up in this room, which was heated. And I didn't realize that the rest of the house wasn't heated. So they literally, they treated me like, some kind of royalty, which is a very Georgian thing to do. Uh, a guest is a gift from God. And that's the proverb that gets mentioned a lot in the novel, and, and people really do live by that. Yeah. What do you wish the West would understand about Georgia and Georgians? Stories like that? Stories like that, yes, for sure. Just the Georgian mentality of smiling in the face of adversity. I think that's very key, especially these days. There is a saying in Georgian that if if you can still laugh at a situation or a hardship, it hasn't beaten you yet. And as soon as you stop laughing, then you might be in trouble. So that I love that about the Georgian people, that they will take the darkest um, situation and make a joke and have you falling out of your chair laughing at it. Leo Vardishvili, his novel, Hard by a Great Forest. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. The Opera Hall of Fame honored seven new members this week. I think even the producers and composer included would agree that the marquee name of their class of inductees was this mezzo-soprano. Frederica Van Stata singing Rossini. She debuted at the Metropolitan Opera in 1970 as she has performed at all the world's great opera venues, all the great works, and premiered dozens of new compositions. Federica Van Stata joins us now from Berkeley, California. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted. Just hearing your voice, this wasn't the first question I'd planned, but let me ask it. How do you do that? How do you sing like that? <laughs> I ask that same question of many of my colleagues, let me tell you. It's uh, luck, good fortune, and a lot of singing lessons. <laughs> wow. You grew up in New Jersey and Washington, D.C., briefly lived as a child in Greece and Italy. How and when did you first begin to grasp that you had that extraordinary voice? Oh, thank you. I sang from the time I was a little girl and loved Broadway more than life. And so I decided to try and be a Broadway girl. 
So I went to a music school around the corner called the Manus College of Music, and I studied with the angel of all time, Sebastian Engelberg, and he suggested that I try for the Met auditions, which I did, and to my utter complete amazement and delight, got a prize and then eventually got a contract. So my first big job was really with the Metropolitan Opera, which is pretty blessed in many ways. May I ask you about your father, your birth father? My dad? Yeah. My dad was killed in World War II. Yeah. He was killed in April of 1945, just uh, a couple of months before I was born. So I only knew him by reputation and stories and I was lucky enough to be part of a project to celebrate him, and that was a composition based on his letters, which I absolutely adored. And I do have all of his letters from the war. They were turned into a very haunting work called Elegies. Exactly, by Richard Daniel Poor. And it's a beautiful, beautiful work. And forgive me this, what is the difference between a soprano and a mezzo-soprano? In notes that we can sing, it's a little bit close. I think a mezzo and a lyric soprano are kind of in the same area. It's just our voices, mezzo voices, are a little bit lower. And there are all kinds of sopranos as well, which makes it complicated if you want to be a singer. Yeah. But I had great leaders in Janet Baker and Marilyn Horn and... Teresa Berganza, and I sort of just listened to them and followed their lead of what to sing. And do I have this right? You didn't learn to read music until you were 21? Yes, I could do everything by ear. Mm -hmm. And then I, when I went to Manus, I had to learn to read music. But it's not a skill that should be, is as developed as it should be. I don't even know if they teach it in schools anymore. I don't think our daughters were taught how to read music. Yeah, you know, the real tragedy of, oh, the last years is that music has been pulled from so many public schools. I work with a wonderful organization now called Young Musicians Choral Orchestra, and we target just those kids. It's an after-school free program from age 10 to 18, and it's all through music with opera, jazz, Broadway, everything, and our aim is to get kids from slightly disadvantaged communities and get them into college. And we've been terribly successful with this. And I'm so grateful to my 20-year affiliation with the program. Our people talk to your people, as they say. And you asked for a song of Barbara Streisand's that you sing. And I must say, it kind of surprised us. Let's listen to Jenny Rebecca. I love the song, and it is also I named my daughter after this song. Oh. So I have my very own Jenny Rebecca. So every time I've sung it, 
I think of my Jenny, who's in her 40s now, and I ha has two granddaughters that I absolutely adore. They are the loves of my life. <laughs> I'm very, very lucky to be their nanny. Oh. Forgive me, but let me ask this. Do you sing in the shower? Do you sing around the house? I sing in all the rooms that have a good acoustic. <laughs> <laughs> so the bathroom comes through as the most effective. <laughs> oh, opera or? Well, I sing a lot of opera, a lot of songs. I try out arias that I can't even begin to comprehend or do, but I still try. And the main part of my singing is with my dog, Sadie, oh. and I sing on all our long walks, up in the hills, the beautiful Oakland hills and all over. And Sadie sings with you? Sadie sings with me and walks beside me. My grandkids, however, if ever I start to sing, it's no nanny, no, no, nanny, nanny, that's too loud. No, nana, nana, no. Even when we go to mass, it's like, nana, nana, keep it down. You teach master classes at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. What do you tell young students is necessary to put a song across to an audience? The thing I tell them the most is not to be hard on themselves. I think that born with the gift of a voice and developing that voice, one tends to be pretty hard on themselves. I also tell them Mr. Engelberg's phrase, sing with all the meaning you can find in the words. Never underestimate the value of the words because it's all about telling a story and it's all about communication and making people feel what you feel about it and what the song is about. The hard work and the slog has been done by their vocal teachers and their coaches. And I just love to go in and share those last bits of sing the music that you love, that you really love and that you understand and that means something to you. And then it will mean something to all of us. Frederica von Stata inducted into the Opera Hall of Fame. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very, very much. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News, where B.J. Lederman writes our theme music. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is NPR. Thanks for starting your weekend with 90.9 WBUR and for listening throughout the week. We bring you the latest news at the start of every hour, and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me begins at 10 o'clock. It's 35 degrees in Boston, coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis, better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply. Now accepting applications for fall. Learn more at bgsp.edu. Campaign season is in full swing. Tons of candidates elbowing each other out to reach that one singular goal. Oh, no, we're not talking about politics. We are talking about the Oscars. Hundreds, thousands of people work in this industry, and it is a huge part of the lifeblood of the movie industry, I think, in a kind of a hidden way. Inside the world of Oscar campaigns, on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, a jury awards Eugene Carroll $83.3 million in damages from Donald Trump. Also, German students learn about the history of anti-Semitism as it resurfaces. And Callum Turner on Masters of the Air. U.S. Air Force pilots risked their lives over Germany in World War II, then returned to Earth. That's what I love about this show is that you can watch them battle it out in the skies and try and survive and complete the mission. But we also come back home to England and you watch them deal with the loss and the effects that that has on their mind and their body and their soul. First, we have our newscast. It's Saturday, January 27, 2024. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Australia and Canada have joined the U.S. in pausing funding for the main United Nations agency supporting people in Gaza. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports the announcement comes after the agency fired several workers for alleged involvement in the October 7th Hamas attacks. Canada's Minister of International Development, Ahmed Hussein, called the allegations, quote, extremely serious. He said that while Canada would continue to provide aid to people in Gaza, it would suspend its contributions to the agency until the UN had completed an internal investigation. Australia's Minister of Foreign Affairs made a similar statement. The U.S. announced yesterday that it was pausing funding after it learned from Israel that a dozen employees of the relief agency had been involved in the October 7th attacks, which left some 1,200 Israelis dead. The U.S. provided $422 million in aid to the agency last year to support Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Tel Aviv. President Biden says he's willing to take a hard line at the border if Congress passes a bipartisan immigration deal. Biden issued a statement late Friday saying he would shut down the border if necessary. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has more. Biden's statement comes after Speaker Mike Johnson said the president wouldn't take action on the border, even if an agreement on immigration was reached. It was the strongest statement Biden has issued on the border, saying it was broken. He called on lawmakers to pass the bipartisan Senate proposal. In a letter to GOP House members, Johnson warned the measure would be dead on arrival and said the House would move forward with an effort to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. 
Negotiations are ongoing in the Senate along with aid to Ukraine, but it's unclear at this point if the bill would move forward. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. New federal data shows a Border Patrol apprehended more than 300,000 unauthorized migrants in December, the highest monthly total in more than two decades. The FAA gave approval this week for the previously grounded Boeing 737 MAX 9 to begin flying again. But passengers might still have reservations about boarding one in Pierre's Deepa Montesham on what to do if that's the case. After a door plug blew out of an Alaska Airlines plane in flight earlier this month, the FAA ordered an immediate grounding and inspection of 171 Boeing aircraft in the U.S. The Boeing 737 MAX 9s have since gone through a thorough inspection and maintenance process, but you might still feel iffy about flying on one of these planes. If so, the booking site Kayak just introduced a way in which ticket buyers can eliminate and exclude the MAX 9 from searches. Websites such as FlightAware also include plane information for specific flights. Or passengers can just find out what particular model of airplane they'll be flying when they book their ticket directly through Alaska or United, the two U.S. carriers that fly the MAX 9. Dibu Motesham, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. After a long day in court, a Superior Court judge reduced fines against the Newton Teachers Association, which has been on strike since January 19th. The judge urged the union and city officials in Newton to use this weekend to reach a deal so that schools could reopen. Newton South English teacher Kelly Henderson says the union plans to do just that. In the next 48 hours, there are no minutes that your educators are going to spend doing anything other than getting kids back in the classroom on Monday. The union will be assessed an additional $50,000 fine if no deal is reached by tomorrow night at 8. Harvard's Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology is removing some Native American objects from its exhibits. The Boston Globe reports the move comes in response to federal regulations to protect Native American remains and related funerary objects. These regulations bar museums from displaying these sacred items without getting tribes' consent. A museum spokesperson told The Globe that it's preemptively removing the objects in anticipation of consultations with tribes. The city of Boston is sharing how it plans to spend money earned from settlements with opioid companies. The city is starting a family overdose support fund with $250,000 to financially assist Boston families who've lost a loved one to an opioid overdose. Families can use the money for funeral expenses, therapy, legal services, and more. The plan was devised after input from the community. Boston's share of money from state settlements will total at least $22 million through the year 2038. This afternoon, the Bruins face the Flyers in Philadelphia, and tonight at the Garden, the Celtics take on the Clippers. It's 35 degrees in Boston, some drizzle and some patchy fog this morning. Cloudy today, high around 40 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. The jury's in. Its decision is expensive for Donald Donald Trump. Eugene Carroll had sued the former president for calling her a liar after she said he had sexually assaulted her. Last September, the judge in the case found Trump liable for defaming the columnist when he left the jury to determine how much he should have to pay in damages, if any. They came back with $83.3 million. NPR's Jimena Bustillo has been following the trial. Jimena, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Help us understand what factors the jury had to consider. The judge instructed the jury to remember that it did establish last May that Trump sexually assaulted Carol and that he knew his statements calling her a liar uh, when she went public were defamatory. And so they had three questions to kind of consider. One, did Carol suffer, quote, more than normal damages as a result of statements Trump made in 2019? And if so, how much should she receive in compensatory damages? The answer from the jury was yes, and they awarded her $18.3 million. Questions two and three to the jury were whether Trump acted, quote, maliciously out of hatred, ill will, or spite, or what they said in willful disregard of Miss Carroll's rights when he made those statements in June 21st and 22nd, specifically of 2019, um, while he was at the White House. And if so, how much should she be paid in punitive damages? The jury once again said yes, answer uh, to all the above, and the answer on the money was $65 million. They only really deliberated for a few hours. Mena, you were in the courthouse for part of the trial. What was that like? Well, we heard from a lot of witnesses, including both Carol and Trump themselves, um, Trump who spoke very briefly. Carol's testimony detailed in large part the immediate aftermath of Trump's comments from the White House. Uh, This is when Trump called Carol's accusations lies and when she said that she is, quote, not his type. Now, Carol testified that after those comments were made, her reputation as a trusted advice columnist and face in the media was affected. She received threats and harassing messages, uh, using similar language that she's a liar out to get Trump and unattractive. Trump's lawyers, on the other hand, argued that Trump was not the cause of the hatred and blowback. And instead, Carol also received a lot of support and fame because of his comments and because of what she came out with. Trump, in his own testimony, was brief and insisted that his previous recorded statement about the allegations were true and that he did not intend to harm her. When asked by Alina Haba, who's his lawyer, if he ever instructed anyone to hurt Carol, Trump said, quote, I just wanted to defend myself, my family, and frankly, the presidency. Donald Trump is facing a lot of legal challenges. What uh, could come next in this case and, and the passel of others he has? Trump's lawyer, Haba, said that they would appeal the verdict, which was expected. Um, Following the decision, the Trump 2024 campaign also issued a statement arguing without evidence that the trial is a political weapon against him, and he disagrees with the verdict. The case is one of several involving Trump, who is also awaiting a verdict in a civil trial that could result in him paying at least $250 million to New York State for business practices which have been deemed by a judge to be fraudulent. He could also be prohibited from doing business in the state where he built his business empire and brand. And that verdict could also come before the month's end. In all, Trump faces 91 charges in federal and state courts, ranging from ones in New York uh, that we have just discussed to those at the federal level related to the January 6th Capitol riot. Um, all of this, he's still, <laughs> while he's running for president and is the leading Republican in the field. So interesting few months ahead for us. NPR's Jimena Bustillo, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you.
And for the latest reporting and analysis on all of the former president's legal difficulties, you can hear NPR's podcast, Trump's Trials, with Scott Detrow and Domenico Montanaro. Today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. 79 years ago today, Red Army troops liberated the Auschwitz concentration camp. In Europe, anti-Semitism is on the rise again, and the German government, mindful of the weight that country carries, has no tolerance for it. As NPR's Berlin correspondent Rob Schmitz reports, that begins in the classroom. High school students chat between classes in the hallway at the Lutli School in the Berlin district of Neukölln. Lately, there's been a lot to chat about. Europe's largest community of Palestinians lives here. Around half our students are Arabic. This means the impact of the conflict in the Middle East often plays out here at this school. Mehmet Jan teaches history and politics at this school, including a class on the history of the Israel-Palestinian conflict, where in-class discussions became heated following the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. Jan says some of his students glorified the attack, prompting him to take a step back with them, look at the facts of the Hamas attack, and urge them to reach a minimum consensus that the group's massacre had nothing to do with Palestinian freedom. These types of in-class moments can be challenging in a neighborhood where a pro-Palestinian group made headlines by handing out treats to celebrate the October 7th attack. I cannot change the minds of the adults who handed out baklava down the road on that day and celebrated the horrific murder of more than a thousand people in Israel. I can't do anything for those adults, but I can foster critical thinking in my students. Most of them are impacted by stereotypes themselves as young Muslims in Germany. They know all too well what it means to be discriminated against. And that's the starting point for Jan and his co-teacher Clara Debor as they teach students about the Holocaust. Germany's systematic murder of six million Jews in World War II has a special emphasis in the country's school curriculum. It's a mandatory unit for all German students. And Debor says it's a gateway to challenges Germany still faces. The lessons we learn from the Holocaust include all forms of discrimination under Nazi fascism, against LGBTQ people, people with disabilities, anyone the Nazis did not consider normal. We see that as a mandate to design a space that is as diverse as possible and promotes democracy. Since October 7th, Germany's government has reported a threefold rise in anti-Semitic incidents, an average of 29 per day in the month following the Hamas attack. In Berlin, these included apartment blocks where Jews were believed to live, graffitied with Stars of David, and attempted arson on a synagogue and physical attacks. All examples that when it comes to preventing anti-Semitism in Germany, there's a lot more work to do. Berlin's anti-Semitism commissioner, Samuel Salzborn, says on the one hand, the city's schools have done a commendable job at teaching students about Hitler and the Holocaust, but... On the other hand, very little is taught about what led to anti-Semitism during the Nazi era, nor is there much content on anti-Semitism in post-war Germany or its modern forms. In my view, anti-Semitism prevention needs to be a part of all subjects. Zaltzborn says Germany has one chance, while children are in school, to reach everybody when it comes to preventing anti-Semitism. One state-funded group helping on that front is called simply Meet a Jew. 
And that's precisely what it offers, the chance for students to ask questions to one of Germany's roughly 100,000 Jews. Inside an eighth-grade classroom in the Berlin district of Schöneberg, a boy asks two volunteers what it feels like to have to go through a security check each time they go to synagogue. Police patrol the city's synagogues around the clock to prevent attacks. A volunteer named Noemi says she's both worried and reassured by it, especially now that she has children. Noemi, who didn't want to give her surname for fear of retribution, says most of the questions she's fielded from students are superficial. We get a lot about our diet, dress codes for holidays, things like that. But she says that's understandable because most students have never met a Jew. She says the deeper questions typically come from Muslim students who see commonalities in how both groups respect their cultures. We're trying to bring more normality. Marat Schlafstein directs me to Jew. We're talking about Jewish holidays. We're talking about just the regular Jewish life. How do we celebrate our holidays? What do Jews eat? What do they, what don't they eat? He says the goal is to debunk stereotypes and build bridges. Often, though, when German institutions try to normalize Jews, says Schlafstein, a backlash follows. In December, when public broadcaster ZDF posted a happy Hanukkah message on its Instagram feed, Schlafstein says at first he was pleasantly surprised. But when I opened the comments under this post, I was shocked. And actually for us, it shows even more why we need to do what we do. What's encouraging, he says, is that in the past two weeks, hundreds of thousands of Germans have staged demonstrations in cities throughout the country against right-wing extremism. The protests were spurred by news of a meeting of far-right politicians who reportedly made plans to deport Germany's migrants and anyone with an immigrant background. The meeting was held just miles away from where the Nazis held their infamous Wannsee Conference in 1942, where the Holocaust was mapped out. Today's far-right politicians are calling their plan for mass deportation re-migration. Teacher Jan Mehmet says his Muslim students are worried. Today, my 12th graders and 10th graders both asked me to talk about this issue of re-migration. Some of them even asked me, will I be deported? They're really scared. Jan says when he's finished with this interview, he's heading upstairs to talk to his class about this so-called re-migration plan and why the far right is again on the rise in Germany. It may be a German history class, but it's beginning to feel all too present inside his classroom. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. Coming up in about five minutes, you'll hear about the Arizona Republican Party in turmoil. Later this morning, you'll get the story from a zoo in England where African gray parrots are causing problems by using foul language. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition. It's 35 degrees in Boston, some drizzle and patchy fog. Clouds today, a high around 40. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. 
we will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. And the Lyric Stage, with trouble in mind, Alice Childress's moving backstage look at identity and stereotypes of 1950s Broadway. LyricStage.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. President Biden will be the keynote speaker at a Democratic Party fundraiser in South Carolina tonight. His campaign is working to shore up support from black South Carolina voters. They were central to his 2020 campaign. Alaska Airlines says inspections of the carrier's Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets have been completed, and some MAX 9 flights have resumed following the midair blowout of a door plug earlier this month. United says it hopes to resume flying MAX 9s tomorrow. And pro wrestling's Vince McMahon has resigned from the WWE's parent company. McMahon stepped down as the board's executive chairman after a former employee filed a federal lawsuit accusing him and another former executive of sexual misconduct. McMahon denies wrongdoing. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The first votes for the Democratic presidential nomination get tallied a week from today, February 3rd. And even though President Biden does not face any major competition, he and his campaign are still investing a lot of effort to turn out the vote. NPR White House correspondent Ozma Khalid is traveling with the president to South Carolina today. Ozma, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to be here. So the Democratic Party changed its uh, primary calendar this year to make South Carolina the first uh, instead of New Hampshire. What's the president going to do in South Carolina today? Well, he'll be speaking at this South Carolina Democratic Party dinner tonight. He'll also be doing some other local stops. Uh, But he's not the only one. Uh, The First Lady was in the state yesterday. She attended a gala for Alpha Kappa Alpha. That's a historically black sorority. Uh, The vice president was here on Martin Luther King Day. So really what you've seen is a lot of investment, I would say, from the Biden team, uh, a lot of time and resources being spent here. You've also seen the South Carolina Democratic Party launch this statewide tour. And the Biden campaign says this is all about energizing their base. Josh Marcus Blank is the campaign's communications director for state operations. We know that to be the Democratic nominee and to win the general, you need to be getting a lot of support from voters of color and, you know, our base. And, and that's what South Carolina is all about. And Scott, you know, black voters are indeed a crucial part of the Democratic Party in a general election. And in 2020, black voters made up roughly 60 percent of the South Carolina Democratic electorate. And that is the major reason Biden wanted this state to go first in the primary process was so that black voters could have a larger say. All of that being understood and noted, uh, the president doesn't have any major challengers for the nomination. And in the general election in November, South Carolina is not generally figured as a state that Mm -hmm. the Democrats are going to carry. So why all the effort now? 
You know, I think part of this is about trying to show that the president indeed values black voices. Uh, but I think part of this is also about trying to quiet some of the naysayers. There's been a lot of hand-wringing in the Democratic Party about whether black voters are enthusiastic about Biden's re-election bid. Adrian Shropshire runs Black Pack. It's a super PAC focused on black voters. And she told me, you know, sure, you can learn some lessons from South Carolina, like whether the tactics that were used to engage black voters did indeed work. But she also worries about folks trying to over analyze or draw, draw the wrong conclusion from South Carolina's results. My worry is that people will glean the wrong things because there's this outsized expectation. I do think that it's important that we understand that the electorate in a primary is different than the electorate in a general. And so what I would hate for people to take away is like, oh, young black voters didn't come out when in fact they're not likely to come out in a primary anywhere. So if that's true, too, and all the spin is done, <laughs> what conclusions uh, might people draw from whatever happens in South Carolina? I asked Tiffany James about this. She's a consultant in Columbia, South Carolina, and she says a lot of the voters that are going to participate in the primary are so-called traditional establishment voters. But Biden also needs to show he can bring in some of the outsiders. We know Biden's going to win <laughs> the Democratic nomination. We know that. But just because that's known, that doesn't mean that we should, I guess, be lackadaisical on engagement. You know, Tiffany is a millennial. She's really worried about young voters who might not always show up in Democratic elections. And she says one of the big things Democrats need to do in South Carolina is show that they are willing to engage with those kinds of young voters. Because even if it doesn't matter next Saturday in South Carolina, it will matter in places like Georgia, North Carolina, Michigan and Wisconsin this coming November during the general election. And Pierre thanks very much. Have a great trip. Thank you. Take care. Former President Trump was supposed to be in Phoenix last night to headline an important fundraiser for the Arizona Republican Party, but he backed out after allegations came to light concerning the chair of the Arizona Republican Party and an attempt to induce a Trump loyalist, Republican Carrie Lake, to, to stay out of this year's U.S. Senate race. From member station KJZZ in Phoenix, Ben Giles joins us. Ben, thanks so much for being with us. For sure. And let's be blunt, accusations of a bribe here, right? Right. Uh, there is a recording of a conversation between Carrie Lake and the chair of the AZGOP, Jeff DeWitt, that was leaked to the Daily Mail of London. In it, you can hear DeWitt asking for Lake's discretion while he passes on offers from, in his own words, people back east to coax Lake to stay out of this year's U.S. Senate race. There are very powerful people that want to keep you out. Oh, the they do. But they're willing to put their money where their mouth is in a big way. It's important to note what's happening here isn't illegal. Party officials do often try to clear the field of candidates they're concerned can't win an election. Elsewhere in that 10-minute recording, DeWitt raised concerns about Lake's electability and her fundraising prowess. Lake still denies her loss to Democrat Katie Hobbs in the race for Arizona governor in 2022. And Arizona is a state with a lot of independent voters who have soured on some of the Republican Party's election denialism. So DeWitt's concerns are valid, but still it's unsavory to have these backroom deals out in public. And Jeff DeWitt has resigned as chair of the Arizona Republican Party, yes? 
Right. Duet says he was blackmailed by Lake. He says she threatened to release more conversations she secretly recorded of herself with Dewitt. Advisors for Lake have denied this, that the, the blackmail threat, and Lake has denied that she was the source of the audio leaks at the Daily Mail. But what did she say about the tape? Lake characterized the conversation as an example of just how swampy D.C. is. She said it shows that candidates like her and Trump are a threat to a corrupt system, and she lumped DeWitt in as part of that corruption. He tried to act like the behavior you heard on that audio is normal communication amongst friends. It's disgusting. She also turned it into a fundraising opportunity by directing followers of that live stream you just heard to her campaign website. And how does Donald Trump explain uh, pulling out of the Arizona Republican Party fundraiser? So a Trump spokesman said the president was busy in court on Friday, and that's why he had to cancel. Uh, but as we saw yesterday, Trump uh, initially stormed out of the courtroom during closing arguments in that defamation case before eventually storming back in. And I should note that case did not go in the president's favor. Trump was ordered to pay roughly $83 million in defamation damages to E. Jean Carroll. It's safe to assume he wasn't interested in making a public appearance last night. Where does the Arizona Republican Party go from here? Well, it appears that uh, a MAGA loyalist, Lake, is firmly in control, at least from behind the scenes. There's actually a state party organizing meeting happening later this morning. I expect there will be a vote on a motion to replace DeWitt, likely with someone on better terms with Lake. But that might not be a boon for the party's overall health. DeWitt was uh, himself a Trump loyalist, and he was trying to thread the needle of pleasing MAGA Republicans and some of Arizona's more establishment Republican base, those attempts to please everyone just wound up leaving a lot of people dissatisfied with the Republican Party. The Arizona GOP has struggled to fundraise in the wake of successive losses in statewide races, like Trump's loss to Biden in 2020 and Lake's loss for governor in 2022. And party officials had to cancel last night's fundraiser after Trump bailed, and now they're issuing refunds to those who bought tickets to see the former president. Ben Giles of member station KJZZ in Phoenix. Ben, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. Since 1978, independent filmmakers have aspired to premiere at what would become the Sundance Film Festival. It used to be that movies would get buzz, spark a bidding war, get sold to a studio for theater distribution. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco was at this year's festival to see if that still happens. Opening at Sundance before audiences of enthusiastic cinephiles is still a thrill for indie filmmakers. Among those making their Sundance debuts this year was Sean Wong with his coming-of-age film, Didi. Premiering at Sundance is surreal and really a dream come true. Didi picked up two major awards at Sundance, and this week another of Wong's films was also nominated for an Oscar. Even so, Didi hasn't yet been sold for distribution. It seems like the industry is in a very uncertain place, not just in terms of sales and acquisitions. You know, you hear every other day that all these studios are letting go of hundreds and hundreds of people. You know, new heads come on, they're having to reimagine their whole infrastructure, and it's a big question mark. 
At the premiere of their new film, I Saw the TV Glow, Jane Schoenbrunn worried about the fate of edgy alternative movies as the film market tightens. Independent film in America becomes more about training people to become Marvel directors and less about creating a viable alternative where more radical visions can be seen and appreciated. But the climate for selling an indie film is even shaky for filmmakers who have worked on big-budget Marvel movies, like Ryan Fleck, who co-wrote and co-directed Freaky Tales. The movie about Nazi-bashing punks and 1980s rap in Oakland also features Pedro Pascal. We just feel fortunate to have gotten this movie made. The climate is rough. I mean, it's hard to make strange, odd movies, you know. As the festival winds down, a few Sundance films did get multi-million dollar deals, including a new documentary about Super star Christopher Reeves, a Jesse Eisenberg comedy, A Real Pain, and a buzzy thriller called It's What's Inside. But by all accounts, the market is slow. It's a disrupted time. Producer John Sloss says gone are the days when indie movies created all-night bidding frenzies, like when he made deals for films such as Little Miss Sunshine and Napoleon Dynamite. Can you bring me my chapstick? No, Napoleon. But my lips hurt real bad. Oh, idiot. John Sloss is CEO of Synetic Media and has been coming to Sundance since 1985. He says times have changed post-COVID. Streamers are cutting costs and seem less desperate to buy content. I think it's a challenging period, a hangover from the pandemic. The theatrical business is still not what it was. And the streamers are here for documentary films. But in terms of scripted films and discovery films, that is not a priority for the streamers. I mean, they're looking for features, but they're looking for features with movie stars. One film Sloth successfully found a deal for is Hitman, which Netflix already bought for $20 million. Am I the right guy to eliminate your problem? Hitman is the latest from writer-director Richard Linkletter. At the festival, he reminisced about his first film, Slacker, which screened at Sundance in 1990. It was just the weird film. Today, it wouldn't even get in Sunday. It would be a midnighter at best, so some kind of fringe film. And, you know, we made our mark. We were kind of such a different kind of original film. But the industry did not come crawling after me for that title. What it did is kind of qualify me as a filmmaker, I guess, in their eyes. And then they were interested in looking at the next script I was working on. Linklater would go on to make movies like Dazed and Confused, Boyhood, and Before Sunrise. I met a guy on the train and... I got off with him in Vienna. We're still there. Are you crazy? But Linklater laments that today the studios and streamers don't seem as interested in gambling on or nurturing unknown filmmakers. It's been 35 years since Steven Soderbergh's indie film Sex, Lies, and Videotape created a sensation at Sundance and kicked off a new era of American indie films. Let's make a videotape. I don't think that's a good idea. Soderbergh reflected back on that first indie movie he made when he was 25 years old. A larger audience was ready to see something that didn't feel like it was made by a committee or a corporation. People were hungry for that, so it's just timing. And what about the timing now? I think everybody's trying to figure out what works. What I take away from last year is the two biggest movies were made by filmmakers who came out of the independent world and then were very smart about how to use the system. Soderbergh was referring to Greta Gerwig and Christopher Nolan, two indie darlings whose box office hits Barbie and Oppenheimer are now up for the top Oscars prize. 
He points out that with control over his film, Steven Spielberg was also an indie filmmaker making commercial hits in the 1970s. Soderbergh says he's thankful to still have that kind of freedom. He was back at the festival 35 years after his first Sundance premiere with his experimental new ghost movie, Presence. If you'd said to me, you'll still be working and you'll bring a movie to the festival, I would think that I'm the luckiest person you know. I've been able to have control over my own work, so I won the lottery. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. African gray parrots are able to mimic all sorts of sounds, including the human voice, whatever those voices say, which can sometimes be a little salty. Parrots at the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park in England have been known to swear to the dismay and delight to visitors but the park may have found a way to curb the bird. Steve Nichols is CEO of Lincolnshire Wildlife Park. Thanks very much for being with us. That's okay, sir. What do the parrots say? Can you tell us? Mm, probably not. I, probably the easiest way to work it out. We have uh, a couple of levels of swear words in this country, and some of them are swear words that children sometimes use that you'll, you'll just chastise for on the lower end of the scale. But then the next level is obviously what adults use, which are quite abusive. And uh, believe me, these are on the next level of abuse. If you can imagine what it's like if you was to uh, stub your toe uh, as you're walking through Ooh. the bedroom at night time, yep. that word that comes out is what they're using all the time. How, how do parents learn these words? Well, African greys are, are relatively unique in the fact that they don't only learn the word uh, or the noise of the word, they actually learn the voice as well. So once they tune themselves into a person, that person, if he says any particular word quite frequent, the chances are the bird will pick it up. And of course, you, you, you want the wildlife park to be welcoming to children. What can you do about it? Well, there's not much we can do about it other than what we've tried, which is we've moved the offending eight African greys to a colony of 92, so that's making uh, 100. And uh, the colony of 92 are quite renowned for making all the mechanical noises that we're used to just generally hearing in a house day by day, things like a microwave or a squeaking door or a kettle. When you stood around, when you feed in it or when, it, when people are around there, it sounds like a normal household. You can hear TV in the background, you can hear games that children play on their arcade games. And we're hoping that the eight that's gone in will pick up all these repetitive noises and repetitive sounds rather than all the 92 pick up the eights language, which will make it a very interesting place then. So you essentially hope the parrots imitate other parrots, the, the clean-talking parrots. Yes, that's the idea. It strikes me that, you know, a colony of swearing parrots would be a real tourist attraction. Do I have that wrong? <laughs> no, it would, yes. I must say I've been looking after parrots one way or another for the last 30 years. And even now, when I walk past an enclosure and there's parrots in there, when they say hello or when they're talking, you just answer them as though you're answering your colleague or a friend or anything. You just say, I'm fine, are you okay, or hello. When you're walking down and one actually calls you an expletive or it actually says something very, very bad, it's very difficult not to laugh. So... I mean, to parrots, it doesn't make no difference. They just know that if they make this noise, we usually end up laughing. And the general public, 
we can actually hear them. So it ends up with the parrots uh, being swore at by the people trying to get the parrots to swear. You are a sanctuary, so if the birds continue to swear, you'll you'll keep them anyway? Oh, 100%, yes. Uh, they'll not be swearing any more or any less than the staff here. And uh, to me, it's just <laughs> like... It, <laughs> to me, it's just one of those things that whatever a bird comes with, whatever baggage it's got, we'll look after and make sure it's okay. Steve Nichols is CEO of the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park. Thanks so much for being with us. Take care now. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The teacher strike in Newton continues. The strike began January 19th. Yesterday, a Superior Court judge reduced fines against the Newton Teachers Association, but the union faces an additional $50,000 fine if it does not agree to a deal with the city by tomorrow evening. Governor Maura Healey is giving nearly $4 million to combat human trafficking. The grant programs will boost enforcement and victim services for survivors of trafficking, domestic and sexual violence, and stalking. The money is going to district attorney's offices, state and local agencies, and nonprofits. Today, the public is invited to join the audience as semifinalists in the Boston Youth Poet Laureate competition take part in a poetry reading. At the end of the reading, the city will announce the 2024 Youth Poet Laureate. The event gets underway at 2 o'clock at the Roxbury branch of the Boston Public Library. It's 35 degrees in Boston, some patchy fog this morning, a mostly cloudy Saturday with a high today around 40 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com. And Habib and Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. Habibarch.com. With the primaries barely starting, President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump are acting like the general election has already started. We're going to look at how President Biden hopes to court black voters in South Carolina and what the MAGA youth movement means for Trump. Those stories plus all the news Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers, information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at PorkCares.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and I look forward all week to saying it's time for sports.
New winner at the Australian Women's Open, men's final tomorrow, and the NFL Conference Finals, Chiefs, Ravens, Lions, and 49ers. Oh, my, Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media joins us. Howard, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. And uh, Ariana Sabalenka uh, defeated Zhang Zin, uh, uh, Zhang Zin Wen of China in straight sets, uh, her second Aussie Open title. She's making a push for number one world ranking, isn't she? She sure is, and what a turnaround it's been for Irina Sabalenka fans who watched her collapse year after year after year. Clearly one of the most powerful, one of the best players in the game, but when the altitude started getting thin, her serve went away. She couldn't, she couldn't make a serve. She couldn't win big matches, and now she's won the Australian Open in back-to-back years, and this, Scott, was a destruction. Uh, yeah. Zhang had a great tournament. She didn't play anybody in the top 50, and believe me, when she went up against Sabalenka, it was a a different weight class, 76 minutes. But great tournament for Sabalenka, two majors now, and obviously having lost in the final to Coco Gauff in the U.S. Open last year, beats Gauff in the semifinal, so I'm looking forward to seeing a great rivalry between those two for the rest of the year in the years coming. Men's final is tomorrow morning, and uh, it's unexpected because Novak Djokovic won't be in it, will he? Novak Djokovic, when you get to the semifinals of the Australian Open, was 20-0 until he met the young Italian Yannick Sinner, who, by the way, was up two sets to love on him at Wimbledon a couple years ago. And Djokovic beat him this year. Not an issue. Sinner comes back. And it's about time. Um, Djokovic is going to be 37 years old. These great champions, they're not going anywhere. You have to beat them. I know we talk all the time about the changing of the guard and all of the poetry and in that, but the Djokovic's and the Serena's and the Nadal's and Federer's, you got to beat them. And this kid came in and he took out Djokovic. He will play Daniil Medvedev, who lost to Djokovic in the final last year. NFL Conference Finals tomorrow uh, on their way to the Super Bowl. The Baltimore Ravens host the defending champion Kansas City Chiefs. What do you foresee? Greatness. <laughs> I see a great matchup. We've what we've wanted to see Lamar Jackson, the Baltimore Ravens quarterback, so maligned for all these years about how he wasn't a quarterback and wasn't this and all, all the things we talk about, all the things you can't do. And here he is. Baltimore is the best team in the league. He's in his moment. He's going to win the MVP. He's going up against Pat Mahomes, who's considered the best quarterback in the game right now, if not the best ever. And also, Kansas City's the defending champion. Love seeing both of those. Mm-hmm. I think when you get to the NFC, what do we have here, Scott? We're going to... Detroit, Detroit! We're going par- <laughs> to... Like that's, that's right. We're going to party like it's 1957. Uh, the Cold. 49ers... The 49ers and the, and the Lions haven't met in the playoffs since the championship game then in 1957. And the Lions are such... Su- they're fans. They suffer so badly... But uh, I think the 49ers are probably a little bit better, but who knows? Adroit Detroit. As we, Detroit, I gotta Detroit. come up with I keep working on, on you know, Detroit uh, equivalent of fear of the deer. What about don't pat the cat? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think that if you're the if you're the Lions, you just have to enjoy this. This team has been so historically bad for so long, yeah. and this is their moment. It's, it's no team is great in the NFL right now. And so I think the 49ers are slightly better, but a good battle. Howard Bryant, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. The ancient Egyptian temple uh, temple of Dendor was famously relocated to New York City's Metropolitan Museum of Art almost 50 years ago. And since then, the temple has inspired musicians and dancers who've been invited to perform there. The latest 
is the singer and composer H. Sinno, who was born and raised in Lebanon, and the opera Westerly Breath. NPR, NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Tsioulukas talked with Sinno, and we note their conversation includes mention of suicide. H. Sinno, also known as Hamed Sinno, used to be the lead singer for a groundbreaking indie rock band in Beirut called Mashrulela. Sinno was an out gay person, and the band championed LGBTQ rights and equality in a region and climate that was often hostile. The band became very popular throughout the region, but its members also faced death threats, and they were widely banned from performing. But a culminating blow, Sinno says, was when an Egyptian fan, Sarah Hagazi, was imprisoned in 2017 for waving a rainbow flag at one of their shows. She was assaulted in prison and suffered PTSD. Three years later, Hagazi died by suicide in Canada, where she'd been granted asylum. Her struggle was a catalyst for Sinno to move to the U.S. Part of what I've been struggling with since I moved here is just questioning why it is that I make music. This question arose of what is the point of what I'm doing, right? Especially after the death of Sarah Higazi, which really just made it so that nothing that I have written since has not just had her face branded on my brain, right, while writing. Sinno, who uses they-them pronouns, says the temple became a right metaphor for their move. After the temple was gifted to the United States by the Egyptian government, it was dismantled and moved in 661 blocks and then reconstructed in New York. And I did at some point feel like I was, just, I was in pieces. And so the opera is about these things or people that are taken apart and then have to be rebuilt and sort of become something else. A particle of nothing. The opera is called Westerly Breath, a piece for voices, strings, and electronics that premiered at the temple last night. Westerly Breath is less about answers than a snapshot of Sinno's process of self-questioning and self-reimagining. One of several threads running through the work is ancient Egyptian myth and the story of the god Osiris, who is believed to be the first mummy. He was killed by his brother, Seth. Seth ultimately rips his brother up into a bajillion pieces, spreads them all over Egypt, and then his sister slash lover recollects those pieces, puts them back together, and creates the first mummy. And through that, he is reanimated as something else. There's a sort of crossing over through dismemberment and then remembermint, which I like to think of as remembrance as well. Limor Tomer is the head of the Department of Live Arts at the Met. 
She points out that Sinno's old band, Mashrul Leila, met while studying architecture in Beirut, and that background drew her in. And so they come from architecture and visual art. They bring a different kind of sensibility and awareness of objects and architecture. Maybe it starts Sinno says they hope this opera can travel to other locations for performances as well, because the opera carries within it the story of the Temple of Dendor itself. Anastasia Tsilkas, NPR News, New York. If you or somebody you know is in crisis or maybe considering suicide, you can call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Masters of the Air, the new Apple TV Plus miniseries, opens with two young American World War II pilots. They're with the 100th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force on their way to be stationed in England, and they're telling each other not to die before they can get there. Then... That's it! The fire's out! Pull! Pull up! Ah! Ah! Murder! We see planes engulfed by smoke and blood clouds and confusion. Masters of the Air, based on the history by Donald L. Miller, as a kind of companion to Band of Brothers and the Pacific, this time telling the story of what was called for its many casualties, the Bloody Hundredth Bomber Group. It's produced by very famous people and features an all-star cast, including Austin Butler as Major Gail Buck Clevin and as Major John Bucky Egan, Callum Turner, the British actor, perhaps best known from Fantastic Beasts. He joins us now from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Scott. Bucky Egan was a real person. All of these people were real, weren't they? They were. Um, and, uh, you know, that just adds to the honor that I feel to represent these men and what they did for our freedoms. You know, they really sacrificed their 20s and their teens for some of them. I think some of the youngest guys who who flew were 16 years old and... Um, 77% of these men went down, and they did that for us, you know. That's what I love about this show is that you can watch them battle it out in the skies and try and survive and complete the mission. But we also come back home to England and they have their feet on the ground, and you watch them deal with the loss and the grief that they have to endure and the effects that that has on their mind and their body and their soul. Is it, um, is it hard? In this day and age, when we have sophisticated satellite-borne guidance systems that show up on our on our phones, to understand the audacity, the daring of what these young flyers did, I, I imagine it was probably hard at the time too. This technology was brand new. You know, in World War One, the only aerial duels that occurred were single fighter uh, planes that would go up. Pilots would shoot at each other with pistols. In 20 or so years, they, they really expanded that technology. And there was a massive rush for the Americans to build all these planes. And the whole thing was, was a guessing game. The idea of precision bombing in the, in the daytime was argued about in Congress. We're so lucky that they stuck with it. You know, the experiment worked. But there were many moments where 
possibly they, they would have backtracked on this and put more men on the ground. And, and if they'd have done that, it might have taken longer to win the war. I think when they started, they sent over 13 planes, 13 B-17s. And uh, it's just extraordinary, the idea, you know, of this brand new concept being played out in real time. The air combat scenes are extraordinary. Um, can I ask you how they were done? Were you ever actually on board a, an old B-17? Um, we did have replicas and we had, I think we had three B-17s. Uh, unfortunately, just before we started filming, one of the B-17s at an air show went down. So, you know, in terms of safety, it wasn't worth the risk. Um, but what we did have was two schools of thinking. We had the old school Hollywood way of doing things in which we had these B-17s that would roll around and they're in the scenes. You can see them for real. The guys, they built, I think, something like 81 buildings for the officers' mess and the barracks. And that space was so big, they gave us a map. Mm. And then on the flip, we had the new school way of doing things, which is this technology called the volume. And the volume consists of a shoehorn effect of LED high-definition screens that show you what's happening around you. And in the middle of that is the B-17. And we would cut out certain sections. So you'd have the nose and, and the cockpit and half of the plane. And another time you go up, it would be the back or the tail uh, or the middle. And actually, as an actor, being in those in the cockpit, uh, it just gives you this all for free. You don't have to think that something's happening. It is happening. It's like, you know, if you ever go to a theme park and you end up on those rides, it's like that, but with these screens around you. And as, a, as an actor, it was a gift. One impression that was very much made on me is that nowadays, understandably, somebody goes through a near-death experience. Yeah. You know, we say, take some time, get some counseling. These young people were told, yeah, good work. You're flying tomorrow, too. Well, I mean, exactly. It's uh, it's truly extraordinary what these what these men went on to do. The idea was that you would have uh, your freedom after 25 missions. Uh, that was the target, but not many people got to 25. You'd be lucky if you got to 15. And uh, we do, we, we, we explore that, you know, the idea of PTSD before it was even a thing. I looked up Major John Bucky Egan, and I was very saddened to learn how young he was when he died, 45, if I'm not mistaken. Then I went a little deeper. You're in your, I think we can say, early, mid-30s. Mm -hmm. Major Egan was five years younger. Mm. most of the actors playing these flyers are in their 30s, and in real life, they were actually in their 20s and even younger. I just find that very poignant. Yeah, I mean, I think of myself as 20 years old and what I was doing with my life or 16, 17, 18, and who I was as a person and the bravery that these men had and the courage and the determination to fight for our freedoms and to win. Um, is something that I'm eternally grateful for. I don't take that lightly. I don't take this responsibility lightly. It's with utter disbelief that they were able to get back into those planes, you know. Like you said earlier, sometimes it would be the next day. I think in the most extreme case, Rosie Rosenthal uh, went up three days in a row. Unbelievable what he was able to do and, uh, and do for a greater cause than himself, a cause that he believed in. Callum Turner, 
Two stars and Masters of the Air on Apple Plus. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Thanks for spending some time with us this Saturday morning here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. Join us at City Space next month. Here and now's Robin Young speaks with Pulitzer Prize finalist Daniel Mason about his hit novel North Woods, a New England ghost story. That's Tuesday, February 6th at City Space. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. On last week's Wait, Wait, actor David Ayelowo told us it's a little odd when people find out the man who starred in the movie Selma is really just a British actor. It's very weird in the gym when you're just trying to get on with uh, getting buff and people scream Dr. King at you. I'm Peter Sagal. If you listen to us at the gym, we'll shout questions at you too. Just tune into the news quiz from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.